All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 163, The South Grows Restless. The conversion is going pretty well. There's still quite a few of you who need to make the switch, but I can't believe how many of you have already done it. So thank you so much for all your support. And also thank you to the new members who've been stepping up to fill in those gaps for people who just haven't made the switch yet. I really appreciate it. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Alastair, Anna Laura, and Claire for signing up already. There's a shift in Anglo-Saxon politics that's occurring. We've had powerful queens in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, especially in Mercia, where queens were more powerful than most. But something is happening in Wessex that will have an impact over the next several hundred years. West Saxon queens are getting demoted. Women on the throne, or next to it, were no longer being referred to as queens in Wessex. They were merely ladies, or the king's wife. But why did that shift happen? Well, we're given a story by Alfred the Great's personal biographer, a Welsh monk by the name of Asser, who we will be talking about more as our story progresses. And Asser tells us about Aidbur of Wessex, the daughter of King Offa of Mercia and wife of King Beortric of Wessex. And he uses her life to explain why this cultural shift was happening. According to Asser, Aidbur was the bride from hell. We're told she was like Cersei Lannister on steroids and that she saw enemies everywhere and often demanded their exile or execution. Eventually, she began to worry about a young man that King Beortric favored. So, she tried to poison him. But she was so incompetent that she accidentally poisoned them both, killing the protege and the king as well. That did not go as planned. And so she went into exile along with a bunch of the king's treasure. And of course, she went to the court of Charlemagne. So we've got a scheming, bloodthirsty, tyrannical husband killer who also absconded with the wealth of Wessex. I'm getting the sense that Asser was not a fan. And he continues. He says that when she arrived in Francia, she was looking to remarry and made an offer of fabulous cash and prizes in exchange for a wedding. Charlemagne asked Aidbur who she would choose to marry between him and his son. You know, who did she like better? And Aidbur said, I choose your son because he's younger than you. Charlemagne, perhaps taking that a bit personally, it always is a bit rough to be told you're old, said, quote, If you had chosen me, you would have had my son. But as you have chosen him, you shall not have either of us, end quote. And then he shipped her off to a convent, where she was eventually kicked out for hooking up with a dude, and was last seen homeless and begging in Pavia. That's the story that Asser gives us, about a scheming, murdering, gold-digging queen who Asser describes as foolish because she didn't see that Charlemagne wanted her to pick him, presumably so he could reject her, I guess, and who sought the D even when in a convent, and who died homeless and starving because of said D. And Asser says that that's the reason why, by the time of Alfred, there were no queens of Wessex just the king's wife. Wait, how does that even work? We have a queen that would have made Lady Macbeth look like a saint, and because of that, Wessex decided that the real trouble here was the title of queen, 
It wasn't, you know, that she was a bad seed, or maybe you shouldn't go and marry off his daughters, or maybe the Mercians are a big problem. No, it's entirely the fault of the title Queen, apparently. And it probably shouldn't surprise you that few historians buy Asser's story. It's almost certainly a load of bunk. So, what's the most likely story of Queen Aidbur? Well, you might remember that last week, King Bjortric of Wessex, Aidbur's husband, had died. Well, after Offa's enemy, Egbert, returned to Wessex and took the throne, that was obviously a bad time for Queen Aidbur. She was the daughter of King Offa of Mercia, and the Mercians weren't the most popular of people in Wessex at the best of times. And then you had the fact that her husband and father had both defeated and exiled this new King Egbert years ago. She might not have had a direct hand in it, but the new king definitely had an axe to grind with both her family and also her recently deceased spouse. This was a tight spot. So we're told that shortly after the new King Egbert took the throne of Wessex, Queen Aidbur was driven into exile. She didn't have much family in Mercia anymore, thanks to her dad's extermination of the various branches of the Iklingas dynasty. And so she went where everyone went. Francia. No poisoning, scheming, or seducing was needed. Queen Aidbur saw the winds had shifted, and she decided to get the hell out of Dodge. So what's up with Asser's story? And what is the real reason for why women were getting demoted? First of all, Asser was writing for Alfred the Great, and the new King Egbert of Wessex was Alfred's grandfather. Not only that, but much of Asser's information came straight from Alfred, and we'll be getting into this in more detail in future episodes, but Alfred and Asser had every reason to highlight the greatness of the House of Wessex. That was pretty much the whole reason why Asser was employed. And when talking about his family's rise to power, they definitely did not want to focus on the fact that Egbert established his right to rule Wessex by claiming to be a descendant of Ingild, the brother of old King Inna. I mean, that's not very good, right? He was distantly related to a brother of a king who reigned about a century earlier. And that is how stretched thin the dynasty was becoming over there. They had to go back generations, and even then they couldn't find a descendant of a well-known king, just a descendant of the brother of a well-known king. Hell, even if you went back to the 500s, all you could find was old King Chalin, who was deposed and died fighting against the people that he claimed to rule. So looking too closely at Egbert's background might not be all that inspiring for the English. But, thankfully for the House of Wessex, Asser's life of Alfred was a panegyric. It was a propaganda piece to motivate the Southern English into following Alfred and his family. And as such, Asser was not likely to say, Oh, Aidbert was nice, and King Bjortric was a decent king. But when he died, your grandfather rode her out of town on a rail, leaving her destitute and at the mercy of anyone who would take her in. Also, for some crazy reason we demoted women, probably because we didn't want to be anything like the Mercians that we hate so much. But hey, bro code, right? So it's all good. No, that's not very inspiring. The better plan is to say that the previous regime was weak, the Mercian queen who was driven into exile was a caricature of awfulness, and, just for good measure, Charlemagne was a total weirdo. Basically, everything that happened was Aidbur's fault. She got what she deserved. And now a new day was dawning under Alfred's dynasty. 
the dynasty that you will be following into battle against our enemies. Also, she was so bad that all royal women got demoted in Wessex. So if you're a royal woman in Wessex, it was all Aidburr's fault and had nothing to do with any of the people running the House of Wessex. The House of Wessex is the bestest. Now, is it possible that Asser was telling the truth about Aidburr? Sure, anything is possible. But it's really improbable. And it just fits a bit too nicely into the evil female leader tropes. Not to mention that we're lacking corroborating contemporary accounts. And you would think that somebody out there would be writing about this epic story of woe in Britain or Francia. It wasn't like Charlemagne had a dearth of people writing about his reign. So yeah, most historians don't buy Asser's story, and I don't buy it either. But whatever happened there, it seems clear that Aidbur was having a rough time of it, and was in exile, or dead. And Wessex demoted their queens at around this point to King's wife, going pretty much in the opposite direction as Mercia, who gave their queens significant amounts of power in comparison with other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Now, this demotion was contemporary with another interesting change that was occurring in West Saxon culture at around 800. When we look at the names that were popping up, it's clear that nobles were no longer naming their children after heroes from the sagas. Now, names are often fad-based with a few classics. We see it even today. Every generation seems to have a few super popular names that every third person seems to have. And to spot the popular names of a previous generation, all you need to do is look for names that sound a bit like an old person's name. Melvin and Frank didn't always bring to mind older generations. At one point, they were the Emma and Sophia of today. So what I'm getting at is sometimes names can just become popular and then lose their popularity. So this change in naming culture might just be from the fact that the names that were popular in the sagas just weren't hip anymore, and so different names were being picked. However, it is telling that the Anglo-Saxon nobility appears to be breaking from their Germanic cultural traditions when it came time to name their children. We also see changes in the way that the nobility was relating to their subjects. The era of kings giving lands and treasure to his followers was coming to a close. Instead of a king being the giver of rings, their lives were becoming more transactional, with the kings selling land and privileges for money, rather than giving them to their things to enhance their own prestige and ensure loyal service. It was becoming all about the money and the MBAs were taking over. The old pagan traditions were dying out. And we see Anglo-Saxon poems lamenting the loss of the age of heroes, like Beowulf and the Wanderer, which can't be reliably dated, but scholars argue that they could have been written during this period. And those poems could reflect this sense that with Christianization and greater integration with continental politics and culture, they were losing contact with their past. They were losing who they were. And we see it on the continent as well. For example, Emperor Louis the Pious famously refused to have anything to do with pagan songs. The past, a past that was pagan, was being lost to them. And it seems that there were at least some poets out there who were taking note. The times were changing. Back in Wessex, King Egbert was on the throne and it looks like Emperor Conewulf of Mercia wasn't looking to interfere. Or maybe was. 
because we're told that on 802, the men of Hwissa fought Eldermen Weosten and the men of Wiltshire, and in the end, Hwissa was defeated. Now, as you know, Hwissa was Mercian territory. Hell, Emperor Conewulf had been using it as his own personal piggy bank. And meanwhile, Wiltshire was under King Egbert's dominion. The chroniclers can try and obscure what was really going on by focusing on specific people involved in the fighting, but this pretty clearly was Mercia and Wessex testing each other's strength. Now, we know that there was some degree of battle, but beyond that, it's hard to say what the relationship between Mercia and Wessex was following this fight. Elderman Weostan didn't seem all that interested in pursuing the forces of Huissa and fighting against all of Mercia. So that raises the question, did he not have King Egbert's support? Or did King Egbert get what he wanted, and he established that Wessex wasn't going to be pushed around any longer? Or maybe there was a peace treaty that established Egbert's independence. There are all sorts of things that might have happened here. But the fact that we have is that while King Egbert was a warlike king, he didn't mess with Emperor Conewulf. For all intents and purposes, Wessex was bottled up in the south. It looks clear, though, that the Mercians, through their vassals, the Huissa, were unhappy about Egbert's ascension, and were making it known. But as always, we should keep in mind that the stories of this era are largely coming from the West Saxon perspective. So while Elderman Weostan of Wiltshire's victory over the Huissa might be real, it might also be propaganda demonstrating the strength of the House of Wessex, since Weostan was Egbert's brother-in-law and thus the kin of King Alfred the Great, which was the man who ordered many of these stories to be recorded in order to demonstrate to the English the greatness of his house. But whatever the case, it looks like there was some sort of arrangement between the vassals of Egbert and Conewulf, and that further hostilities were avoided. The following year, there was another Council of Clove Show. These were the councils that were comprised of both secular and ecclesiastical leaders, and were tasked with settling issues, both for the kingdoms and for the sea. And presiding over the council was Archbishop Aethelherd of Canterbury. And of course, the issue of the Archbishopric of Lichfield was brought up. Emperor Conewulf wanted Lichfield demoted and reincorporated into Canterbury, which he controlled. Canterbury actually wanted the same thing. And beyond that, the Archbishop of Lichfield had already been demoted, and now he was just regular Bishop Higebert. The only thing that was holding up reincorporating the Southern Sea was the fact that Pope Leo III wasn't crazy about the idea of overturning the decisions of his immediate predecessor, Pope Hadrian. After all, this was his baby. But the letters and testimony from Conewulf made the case that Pope Hadrian had been deceived by King Offa who he claimed was a power-hungry tyrant. Further, Pope Hadrian had lost some of his stature after that whole situation where his friends and family organized a group of thugs and beat up Pope Leo III and then chased him from Rome. So the aura of holiness his decisions once carried was probably somewhat tarnished at this point. So after some discussion, it was decided that Pope Hadrian's establishment of the Archbishopric of Lichfield was invalid because it was created under false representations. Now, Higebert apparently stayed out of this whole mess. Having already been stripped of his pallium, he probably saw the writing on the wall. But in the end, just as Emperor Conewulf had wanted, Archbishop Aethelherd had a unified southern sea. 
The council went one step farther, though, and stated that the see established by St. Augustine, namely the Archbishopric of Canterbury, would never again be diminished by the church or by state action. Essentially, the Council of 803 declared that Canterbury would be the power in the South from now until the end of the world. That is an enormous shift, and also was probably a bit worrying. It looks like they might have tried to mitigate that by establishing the tradition of Southern bishops making a written promise that they would follow Catholic orthodoxy and would be obedient to their superiors. Basically, they made a written contract promising to behave. Interestingly, this is just for the Southern bishops. The Northern bishops did not do that. And I suppose it makes sense when you consider the Kentish rebellions, the actions of rogue bishops and archbishops, Archbishop Aethelherd's sprint out of Canterbury when Kent rebelled, and all the other crazy things that were happening down there. They were a little bit out of hand, and it seems that the church wanted a contract that said that they would just, you know, stay in line. But, unless you can effectively enforce a contract, it's worth less than the paper it's written on. And it remains to be seen whether or not the church and the secular powers could keep these archbishops of Canterbury in check. Now that might sound like some granular politicking between a bunch of old men, but this shift would have far-reaching effects in England, since the archbishops of Canterbury haven't always been all that friendly with the Anglo-Saxon kings. And going forward, they won't always be besties with the kings of England either. The tension between the church and the throne is the chisel that shapes what will become England. This council could rightly be seen as the first warning sign that we're entering another crucial period of conflict between church and state. The following year, on the 19th of May, 804, Alcuin died, and he was buried at St. Martin's Church. The loss of Alcuin is significant. It's not quite as devastating for the historical record as the loss of Bede, but with regard to his impact upon Western learning, it's tragic to lose a mind like his, and it's no surprise that he was canonized. His scholarship, his devotion to education, and his efforts on the continent led to a permanent change in European culture, and vast numbers of Western European luminaries of the next generation were trained by him. His impact was so far-reaching that when looking at his influence on the Frankish court, the purity of the way he spoke Latin in comparison with native speakers, and the sheer number of students that adapted to his distinctive form of Latin, well, many scholars point to Alcuin as a major cause for the linguistic drift between the Romance languages in Western Europe, leading to the modern day where French is distinct from Italian and Spanish. Some scholars argue that without Alcuin nudging it as he did, that drift might not have been so drastic. So, Alcuin is gone, but we will see echoes of his impact for centuries, and he's an excellent example of how Britain is not adrift and isolated, nor is it backwards and barbaric. Minds all over Western Europe came to a Northumbrian monk to learn, and Northumbria housed one of the most impressive libraries in Europe. The British had things to offer to the world, and they regularly demonstrated it, even during the so-called Dark Ages. Nearly a year to the day after Alcuin's death, on the 12th of May, 805, Archbishop Aethelherd of Canterbury died. Aethelherd was a Mercian who pretty much had been hand-selected by Offa, 
and for good reason, after the disastrous conflict he had with Archbishop Jambert. So you can see what's coming up next, right? Emperor Conewulf found himself in a tough spot. He needed a new archbishop. And he had just worked really hard to destroy the Archbishopric of Lichfield, which was really the only check on Canterbury's power in the south. And right about now, he might have realized why King Offa wanted that check. And he might have also been regretting breaking it, because now he was playing incredibly high-stakes poker with the selection of the next archbishop. If this went bad, he needed to look no farther than Offa's reign. Archbishops and bishops in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms weren't just active. They would sometimes gather up entire armies into their service if they weren't happy with the kings they were ministering to. This was not a minor matter. And looking at the situation, Emperor Conewulf's eyes fell upon a man named Wulfred. Wulfred was a member of the Christ Church community in Canterbury and was from a very wealthy Middlesex family and he continued to retain significant lands there. This was advantageous to Emperor Conewulf for a few reasons. A candidate like Wulfred would hopefully make the rebellious population of Canterbury happy, since he was from their community, while also protecting Emperor Conewulf's interests, as he had roots in Middlesex, which was a Mercian territory, and he was also from the aristocracy. So the matter was settled. It would be Wulfred. His name, by the way, means counseled by wolves. So there is that. And I love the fact that his name was suspiciously like the troublesome Bishop of York from the 600s, Wilfred. But whatever, the decision had been made, and hopefully Archbishop Dances with Wolves would be different from the other archbishops. And it looks like Conewulf immediately set out to make an ally of this new archbishop. He granted Wilfred the right to mint his own coins, which would have been a way for him to expand his wealth, since mints kept a portion of the precious metals they used for cutting coins. But not only that, he allowed Wilfred to mint coins without putting Conewulf's name and title on the other side. They would just be his coins. Conewulf was showing a ton of deference there. Now, there's a split among scholars as to why he was doing this. Some argue that he was extending goodwill to the archbishop, and that was all it was. Others point out that this might have been a sign of Mercia's already weakening influence over the archdiocese, and in the south in general, and that his deference to the archbishop was less of a choice and more of a necessity. But whatever the case, it looks like the coins weren't enough to ensure everything between the two men would remain friendly, because trouble was on the horizon. It turns out that Wilfred was a bit like Wilfred, and we'll get to that next week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. Oh, that was not easy.